crush your enemies. They drew first blood, not me. See them driven before you? Oh, my user. And they hear the lamentation of the women. But I pity the fool. Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Phone home. They're here. Oh, real light sleeper, child. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing A Stranger is Watching, released January 22nd, 1982. It was written by Mary Higgins Clark, Earl Mac Roche, and Victor Miller, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, and released by United Artists. In 1977, before Mary Higgins Clark's A Stranger is Watching had even been published, producer Sidney Beckman bought the film rights from a manuscript. He brought on Alan Sharp, screenwriter of Night Moves, to adapt the story to screen, but with the addition of Friday the 13th director Sean S. Cunningham, Sharp was replaced by regular Cunningham collaborator Victor Miller and Earl Mac Roche, who made some significant changes to the original story, which we'll discuss at the end. Production took place largely on location, including in the sweltering subterranean catacombs beneath Grand Central Station. That's not studio wow. stuff. Wow, that's, that's actually pretty neat. Yeah. And gross. Yeah. The budget topped out around $5 million, but it did not make that much back in the full box office run. We start with a creepy Elfman-esque score and red credits over black. Our second red credits film in a row. Unless last time they were black over red. Maybe they were inverted on the last one. Picture opens on a dark residential street. Occasional strings in the score keep us on alert. The camera pushes into an upstairs bedroom window, and inside we see a young girl sleeping. She's awoken by the muffled screams of her mother, and as she creeps down the stairs, she finds her mother being attacked by a man in their living room. We get an insert of a tape recorder on the carpet, indicating that this attack is being recorded, but that never comes back to play any part in anything. The girl screams for her mother, and mom urges her daughter Julie away to safety. The assailant picks up a hammer and bashes in the mother's head. The man takes several flash photographs of the bewildered and terrified girl before running out the door. And then we see a face pushing toward her as she screams for her fallen mother. She wakes back in her bed with a scream and her father scrambles out of bed to check on her. She pleads with her father to confirm that this man will not come back, implying that this was more than just a nightmare, but a flashback to the event that took her mother some time ago. The girl hasn't noticeably aged, so this was probably recently. He assures her that the man can never come back here. We cut to a monitor on an editing bay that contains the face from her dream. His name is Ronald Thompson, and he's already been found guilty. We hear the voice of a reporter, Sharon Martin, played by Kate Mulgrew. Unless his lawyers can get a stay, this man, Ronald Thompson, will be the first man to die under the state's tough new capital punishment law. She's annoyed at the boilerplate copy for this segment, and her editor insists that it's fine how it is. She watches the editor pick B-roll for the story, and he includes footage of Julie's father crying after the funeral. She's annoyed that they would use this clip and further embarrass the man we'll learn is a close friend of hers. They don't have anything better, and the segment will probably go out like this anyway. It's good stuff, Sharon. Friend or no friend. A producer stops by demanding the tape, which is set to air in less than an hour. Turns out this convict is set to be executed just three days from now. We cut back to Julie's bedroom the next morning, and her father gently wakes her for school. He doesn't gently wake her. He sneaks into her room and goes, Julie. This is like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> I promised he'd never come back. Yeah. And then I emulated him in the morning. 
We follow her to the bathroom, and just as she begins to remove her shirt, we cut to Mr. Peterson sitting down for breakfast. A woman in his home will come to know as Mrs. Luffs tells Mr. Peterson that Sharon will be on the news shortly. Upstairs, they hear Julie screaming and both race to her. When Dad throws open the shower curtain, she's just complaining about the cold water, but still standing in it like I definitely wouldn't be if it yeah. were so uncomfortable. Also, she screams for help. Right. She says, help me. It's like, just turn off the water, dumb. Yeah. Also, it seems wholly unnecessary that this camera is following the child around as she undresses and showers. Yeah, it like it got really uncomfortable because like she's and she's lifting up the shirt and it's like okay, cut, cut, and yeah. she's like lifting it higher. It's like cut, cut, cut the shot. What are you doing? Why is this happening? Why did this girl have to get naked on set for this scene? Uh, also, who gets into the shower without checking the temperature of the water? I, it might have turned cold. Mm. Maybe, but there was probably a way to portray her father as jumpy and still keep her clothes on for these scenes. Peterson asks Mrs. Luffs to have her husband, Bill, the handyman, see about the water problems. Downstairs, he takes a seat in front of the television, just in time for a report on the execution of his wife's murderer. There are widespread protests against the recent reestablishment of capital punishment. Should a civilization protect itself by taking the lives of those who have themselves taken a life? Thompson's execution will be the first in almost 30 years for the entire state. She fills us in on the whole backstory here. The facts of the case are relatively simple. Two years ago in Carly, an exclusive New York bedroom community, Nina Peterson, wife of News Today magazine's editor Stephen Peterson, was savagely raped and killed while her eight-year-old daughter looked on helplessly. Thompson, a 19-year-old delivery boy, has steadfastly maintained that the real killer of Nina Peterson escaped just before he arrived, and that Peterson's daughter mistook him for the man who had murdered her mother. In the book, instead of working as the editor of a separate publication, he is an advocate for the death penalty, trying to establish capital punishment, and not because his wife's killed. That just happened to a guy who happens to approve of capital punishment. Huh. I think I, I prefer this. I think so, too. I think this is an improvement. Also, this, this new segment in the book is not just him watching the television, but the two of them arguing on television at the beginning of the film. So he's pro-capital punishment and she's against capital punishment and it's a debate show. Mr. Peterson is obviously annoyed by the segment and calls up to Julie to get a move on. Over breakfast, Peterson mentions that Sharon is coming for dinner tonight and Julie doesn't seem enthused about it. On a scale of one to ten? Five. Oh, she gave you an eight. Eight? Yeah, you lost out on congeniality and you can't twirl a baton. On the way to the car, Julie offers warm greetings to their next-door neighbor, Mr. Perry. Sharon checks in with Peterson's secretary at his office. When they're alone together, Peterson expresses his disappointment with the segment. He agrees that the execution is worth reporting, but doesn't think he or his daughter need to be mentioned at all. Oh, and uh, News Today magazine isn't going to cover the execution. Yeah, but not quite the same way. Uh, there won't be a full-color blow-up of the condemned man's mother grabbing the warden by the ankles, begging him, please don't kill my son. I think that's unfair. Yeah? Uh-huh. Temper's cool, and they hug each other as she confirms her reservation for tonight. We cut to Julie on the school playground, racing her friends back and forth across a basketball court, and slowly push into the standard-issue windowless van across the street. A hand reaches out the window to adjust the mirror so the unseen driver can keep an eye on Julie and company. We cut to an underground office as two hands screw in a light bulb to illuminate the scene. Rip Torn, dressed as a leather man, sits down at a table and starts organizing things from a bag. It looks a lot like kidnapping supplies, mm. bindings, tape, and a photograph of young Julie, though, notably not one of the pictures taken the night of her mother's murder, which 
I guess would have given him away he, too quickly. Yeah, I mean, you, you take like, why those, even show him take the pictures then? Like, like unless he's got his own uh, film developing. Yeah, you take those over to the to the twenty four hour photo yeah. place. They're this gonna be a like a girl uh, speckled in blood crying yeah. on a staircase. Like, who's been oh, fe- this was a funny prank we did. Who's been heavily featured in the news? Yeah, I, but I like amongst his uh, his equipment, he had a Milky Way. Yeah, <laughs> Milky Way bar, and it just reminded me of this is the end. It's like. James Franco was like, I went out this morning, specifically bought this Milky Way to eat after my party. That's weird. It's not weird. It's my special food, and I like it. <laughs> it makes me think of those Snickers commercials like, oh, you're acting like Rip Torn. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you have a Milky Way? It just turns into a 22-year-old kid. I'm just a delivery boy. I didn't do it. We cut back to the Peterson home where Julie is watching Tom and Jerry in the living room. Across the street, the neighbor, Mr. Perry, notices someone creeping around the Peterson house. And his bedridden wife assumes it's just Mrs. Luff's husband, Bill, sneaking liquor from a hidden porch flask. Yeah, it is Bill Luff's, all right. When the camera cuts closer on the man, we see Mr. Perry is correct. But then, Mr. Luff's notices something suspicious happening on the outside of the second floor of the Peterson house. Turns out, housekeeper Mrs. Luff and her handyman husband, Roger, are leaving this girl unattended to avoid missing the start of a film. Mm -hmm. They tell her that Sharon is minutes away, but holy shit, would I fire these people in half. Yeah. (laughs) Even if nothing happened, these people would be dead to me. When they leave the house, we get a glimpse of another shadowy figure breaking into an upstairs bedroom window. Alone, Julie begins searching the house for her cat, Mindy. She's preparing a meal for the cat when the kitchen phone rings. It's Dad calling from Grand Central Station, and she tells him Sharon hasn't arrived yet, but that she aced her history test that she didn't even study for. She hears a noise in the house and sets the phone down momentarily to investigate. Her father suddenly hears her screaming over the line and completely freaks out, as we've already seen him do multiple times when she screams. Luckily, those other events weren't set up for a boy who cried wolf situation. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, you're always screaming. What, is the water too cold in the kitchen? (laughs) Rip Torn drags her all over the house as she continues screaming. Sometime later, we see Sharon arriving to the home. She's very confused to find the house empty and at first assumes Julie is playing a trick on her. But in a twist I didn't expect, as she searches the house's various closets, Rip Torn emerges to grab a hold of her. I, I assume that just the kid would be kidnapped, yeah. but he pops out and grabs her. <laughs> we hard cut to a kitchen chalkboard, which reads, I got the kid and the girl. You want to see them alive? Don't get cute. The police are already here, and a detective corners Mr. Peterson in the kitchen. Fucking people left my daughter all along. The detective promises they'll get her back and asks if it's at all possible that Sharon kidnapped Julie to make a statement and prevent Ronald Thompson's execution. When Peterson dismisses the possibility out of hand, the detective announces that this is now officially a double kidnapping case. It's a pretty hard leap, I feel, to to link to a major, to a high-profile reporter it, kidnapping a child. It probably made more sense in the original story if they were actually debating this and mm. and maybe it's less of a leap for her to try to prove her point by right. doing this kidnapping. But in this version, I I do think that that's a little But right away he says that's definitely not what happened because he's yeah, yeah, about, yeah. he was about to propose to this woman. So he he knows that she wouldn't yeah, do and something Yeah, and they like drop this. that immediately yeah. when he says, nope, not Be a pretty happen. fucked up thing to do to a guy whose wife was already killed is to pretend that his daughter had been kidnapped. Outside Grand Central Station, we see the windowless van park. Rip Torn opens the door and drags out a large green duffel bag. He leaves Sharon bound in the car and carries the bag over his shoulder through the station, past a pair of homeless women, one of whom gives him the stink eye from behind a row of filthy dolls. 
Rip follows dark and damp corridors deeper and deeper underground until he reaches a small concrete room with a pair of cots inside. Only now does the duffel bag begin wriggling around and we learn officially that Julie is in here. Why wasn't she... Making sounds at all? Yeah. The whole time? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Unless he drugged her. All she had to do was when when she heard a lot of people around her, start Mm -hmm. thrashing about. Be like, hey... Uh, it's me, the talking duffel bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why would you? Yeah, why would you hold still for that? Uh, also, it's very clear that there's a body in this bag. It's not like loose. Yeah, it's, it's very folded into fold. an L shape over his shoulder. Yeah, it's very, very uh, person shaped. Nobody, bag. nobody says yeah. anything as he walks through a crowded train station. That's New York. You've, <laughs> you've seen it all. Everybody carries body shaped bags That's around. That's just how they transport bodies. The detectives question the Luffs about who else might have known their plans for the evening, but they didn't tell anyone. Or they claim not to have told anyone. The phone rings, and it's someone named Kerner calling for Sharon. Mrs. Luffs, pretending nothing is wrong, informs Kerner that Sharon has left back to the city. We cut to Sharon now, still tied up in the van, and a trio of teens sneak up to siphon gas out of it. They're trying to keep a lookout for the owner, but are disturbed by Sharon's distressed moaning inside, because her mouth is taped shut. Mm -hmm. Rip shows up to shout them all away from his van and begins untying Sharon. We see him walk her through the station with a hand on her neck. And already, I know Richard had a problem with this whole sequence. Yeah. (laughs) Just fucking say this guy kidnapped a girl. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even have a weapon. Yep. It's not like he pulled out a gun and said, I have a gun on you. He's literally just walking with her through a crowded train station. What you do is you just drop to the ground, wrap yourself around one of his legs. Yeah. And then just scream for help. Yeah. Because he can't get you off of her, you, and people are going to come. Yeah. He can't run away. Uh, it, but they needed to get her through this crowded area down mm-hmm. to the place. And so she she cooperates here for some reason. Yeah. This 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 is t- too much. Bo- bo- both times, both trips of this guy. Yeah. It should have been some underground passage to get exactly. to Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or at least show that you drugged the girl to get her in there or yeah. something. Or even, e- there's even like a, like he even drives his truck down into like a drainage tunnel. Yeah. Like, like drives his van all the way into this place. It's yeah. like hard to get to. Because who is this guy? Because that means every time he goes to this train station to check on them, to bring them food. He has to go through the He's got to go through yeah. this set of doors that it's like someone's going to notice. Yeah. It's not like he works there. Or maybe he does. I don't yeah. know. We don't really know. We, yeah, we don't see his job. I mean, in the book, he's a mechanic. But they don't specify in the movie, I don't think. He walks her down the same path to the small room, but before he gets there, the homeless doll collector peeks in and sees the squirming duffel bag. When she hears Rip coming back, she ducks around a corner, and Sharon is led to the same room. He tries to kiss her, and she reminds him that there's a child here. Then she turns around and offers to bribe him to spare her. You can have anything you want. I know, Sharon. I know I can have anything I want. He tells them to stay put. And when Sharon asks what his plan is, he gives her one more kiss before leaving wordlessly and locking the door behind him. Sharon verifies the door is locked and then admits to Julie that they are, in fact, both frightened. On his way back out of the subterranean depths, Rip is suddenly being followed by another homeless man, played by William Hickey. Hickey asks what the man is doing down here, and then suddenly he's bragging about his military service Mm -hmm. and then the natural conclusion of these conversations. (laughs) Show me your dick. (laughs) Let's see you back Instead, Rip Torn clocks the man over the head with a flashlight. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a kidnapper and ransomer attack a homeless man, possibly to death, when he started getting too sexually aggressive? 
Night of the Juggler. That's right. Ah, oh, wow. Hey. Good Because the guy was like, oh, we're going to share some wine. And then he's like, oh, maybe we can share the girl. And then he slits his throat. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we haven't had that many kidnapping movies. Yeah. Mm. Presidents. A couple of presidents. Kind of <laughs> we kidnapped the president and kidnapping the president. And we did it again in uh, the Wild West one with uh, Robards as Grant. Mm. Mm-hmm. The Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger. There you go. We dip to black and come back to the Perry's home where a phone rings. Roger answers, and the voice on the phone directs him to his mailbox to collect an audio tape for Mr. Peterson. They put it in a tape deck, and they hear the kidnapper's voice demanding $182,000 in exchange for the girls. So presumably, this house that's swarming with cops had somebody go walk up across the street and put something in the mailbox. No, I I think either Rip Torn put it there before he took the girl, or... um, yeah, there, he had someone else put it there. Outside. Yeah, there, there's two other very obvious suspects of who would who could have done it without seeming weird. Yeah, I just feel like you got as a long house as... full of cops. Anybody walking around is going to be like looked at. Yeah, but I I think Rip Torn could have put it in there as soon as the mailman left, because no one's going to touch that mailbox for the next twelve hours, and so he put the tape in there knowing that he could call on it later. Yeah, I suppose. In a really fucked up thought, I thought it was like, oh, what if it was just his wife's. Screaming. Just the tape of her screaming and getting raped and murdered. Yeah, it was like, oh, sorry, I taped over this part to 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 leave you this message. Part of it is just like him trying to sing, and he's like, oh fuck, I keep fucking it up. <laughs> I can't hit this note. Yeah, that's one thing I do like about his character. He's so easily agitated yeah. by everything. <laughs> yeah, that's just rip torn. The voice on the recording also instructs Peterson not to call the police, but he probably should have put that on the chalk note, like he does in the book. <laughs> Waiting until now, he would obviously have called the police by now. It's been like six hours since his daughter was kidnapped. Kerner calls back again, this time hoping to speak with the younger kidnapping victim, but Peterson says nope and hangs up again. The Luffs apologize for leaving his daughter alone to be taken. We'll be in our room if you need anything. Oh, I'm surprised you found a room on such short notice. Yeah. Where is it you're living now? Because it's not in my fucking house, that's for sure. On his way back to the hideout, Rip clotheslines the doll collector in a narrow corridor as she shouts after him before checking on her babies. But I love that he just, like, knocks her to the ground. <laughs> so fucking asshole. We cut inside the small room again, and Julie and Sharon are just barely managing to pry open the door when suddenly Rip is filling the doorframe, and he shoves them both back into the room. He slaps Sharon over and over as Julie screams for him to stop. Sometime later, they sit for several minutes watching him construct a bomb, and Sharon asks how much the ransom is. Not sure why she's bothering to ask, and neither is Rip. None of your business. I'd like to know what we're worth. She asks about a timetable for this whole operation, and in place of an answer, he waves the bomb in her face, and somehow she hasn't gathered what he was working on that whole time. You know what this is? Your science project. It's a bomb. He's rigging it to the door in case they try to escape or someone attempts to rescue them while he's not here. Just as he reveals what it is, we get a quick Julie POV and cut rapidly back and forth with her memory of the attacker from the night her mother was murdered. He locks them in again and then activates the bomb with a remote from outside. Sharon starts scouring the walls for another point of egress and locates an old boarded over and spiderwebbed dumbwaiter. It's large enough to hold Julie, so Sharon tucks her inside and tugs on the rope and pulley system to send Julie to the top of the shaft but it's all bricked over on one side where, where there would have been a window into mm. a restaurant because someone mentions that this used to be a dishwashing station. Yeah. And in the book, they even specify that 
Rip worked in this dishwashing station. Yeah, and that's and I, how he knew about this rum. I think I kind of just assumed that. Yeah. When the box gets to the top of the shaft, she is able to step out of it onto another platform and finds a small tunnel. She crawls on her hands and knees through billowing steam. Eventually, she comes to a dead end, and Sharon lowers her back into their cage. I would just stay up there. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, figure out some way for Sharon to bring herself up there. Like. That that seems like that would be the real hard part. Yeah. Although this box does seem to be open on the top. Mm-hmm. So maybe she could have stood up on it and still pulled herself up. Yeah, yeah. She was strong enough to do yeah, cause, that. Because there's no reason to go back down. Yeah. And, um, and if you could actually, like, pull up the board behind you as you went inside, then he would think you just got out somehow. Because mm-hmm. he would come back in and you, you were both gone. Yeah. Because Rip Torn's not getting up that shaft. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also there was also just, like, a lot of valves. Right. And I was just like, just start. Just fuck just start up. Cranking <laughs> valves. Yeah. Like, like so, somebody so, would come down and fix it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone, something's going to happen. Start biting these rats hard. <laughs> and then when people see rats with human bites in them. They'll be like, but that's the girl. Let's check the dental records. Well, I mean, I just think about that scene in the Goonies. Well, it was like, you know, these pipes lead somewhere. They yeah. do something. Yeah. There's a purpose to this. It's like when Mario breaks all the pipes and freezes the tunnel. So they yeah, can yeah, yeah. Exactly like that. So they that. can slide down on the mattress? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and later on, one of the Goombas, a little Goomba slide. That night, Julie dreams again of her mother's murder. And this time, clear as day, the man taking her photo on the staircase is Rip Torn and not Ronald Thompson, the man about to be executed. Nonsensically, we are also entreated to a shot from nobody's perspective of Rip and Ronald crossing paths in the home's entry hall. We even see Ronald lean down to help Julie up and ask what happened here. Ronald stupidly picks up a hammer and we see images of both men cutting back and forth rapidly to signify her confusion. Finally, Julie wakes with a startle and admits to Sharon that she's had a realization. The man holding them captive here is the same man who killed her mother. She claims that her confusion stemmed from the flash photographs that blinded her before Rip left the house. He killed my mother. But you said in court that Ronald Thompson, the other man, did it. I know. But when Ronald Thompson came in, the other man ran out. But you were so sure, Julie. She tries to comfort the girl and slowly comes to the realization that while they are trapped down here, an innocent boy is being sent to the electric chair several floors above them. She needlessly makes this realization out loud, which can only serve to make Julie feel worse about what she's done. They're going to execute <laughs> The next morning, we see Rip make a phone call from a booth and providing Mr. Peterson with the terms of the handoff. No new bills, no consecutive bills. Nothing bigger than a 50, right? Right. And I want you to have it in United Airlines flight bag. When he senses Rip is about to hang up, he shouts for more information. He demands proof his daughter is alive, but Rip knows that he's only keeping him on the line so the cops can trace it. Rip hangs up, and all the cops have so far is an area code in Manhattan. As he leaves the phone booth, Rip is panhandled for change and turns the kid down. The young man follows Rip into a nearby men's room and bangs on a row of bathroom stalls to summon his entire gang to take Rip's money by force. Rip seems delighted to take on five or six guys at once and holds his own at first, but they eventually get him on the floor just as a cop shows up and they scatter. Do you remember the last time a bunch of guys were hiding in a bathroom, a bunch of gang members were hiding in a bathroom? Uh, the last detail? Uh, well, they were soldiers. Yeah. I, I, was, I, was thinking, I was thinking the warriors. Oh, okay, there you go. That works too. Back underground, Sharon and Julie are discussing their growing hunger. You really go for a cheeseburger with bacon, lettuce, and tomato. Yuck. 
Julie just wants three scoops of mocha chocolate chip ice cream. Oh, it's terrible for your complexion. It was my mother's favorite. Well, your mother had bad skin. <laughs> no wonder this girl doesn't like you saying comments like that. You're going to be ugly, kid. Don't eat ice cream, you ugly. They have a bit of a heart-to-heart, and Sharon reveals that she lost her father around the same age that Julie lost her mother. Bizarrely, Sharon asks Julie if she misses her mother, who she saw brutally hammered to death in front of her. Do you miss your mother, honey? And then transitions right into asking how to properly replace her. What would it take to make you like me, Julian? Rip shows up with his face bloodied and bruised from the bathroom fight, and Sharon puts on a concerned face. In the book, the kidnapper is more convinced that Sharon is completely in love with him from the start. When he sees her on television before the kidnapping, he's convinced that her eyes are pleading with him specifically. Do you recall the last time somebody assumed a news reporter they saw on TV was in love with them? Eyewitness? Yeah. Yeah. Sharon recommends Rip keep his wounds clean to avoid infection and even helps him to clean them with a damp rag. When she's done treating his injuries, she slowly wraps her arms around him and then leans in close. Very suddenly, she kicks up her knee and smashes his balls. He recoils in pain for long enough that Julie is able to blast full speed out of the door and Sharon follows close behind. When Rip gets his bearings, he chases after them. Julie and Sharon run along the tracks needlessly close to being smashed by a train when they could just as easily have walked beside them. After it passes, they come face to face with another homeless man and plead with him for help. In exchange for the cash they have on them, he is kind enough to lead them toward safety, and at the top of a staircase they get their first fleeting glimpse at the world above when they see daylight and pedestrians crisscrossing over a grate above them. Now maybe I'm crazy, but like if I'm running through tunnels like this, I would probably just stay on the tracks running as fast as I can because I'm going, get to, a station? I'm going mm. to get to a station yeah. eventually. Yeah. And that's the way out yeah. where there's people. Or if I could at least get close enough and I start screaming, people are going to be like, there's somebody on the tracks. Yeah, you don't need to bargain with hobos. Also, they go up a ladder and Rip Torn follows them up the ladder. Right. I would just be at the top of the ladder waiting for him to peek his kick head up and face. just yeah. kick him in the <laughs> face. You're going to get ripped and torn. Ooh. Their relief is short-lived and they are intercepted by Rip, at first posing as a cop to scare off the homeless man, and then, without warning, he stabs the man and shoves him down the long flight of stairs. Back at the Peterson house, Mr. Kerner, frustrated after a night of fruitless phone calls, barges right into the kitchen and is swarmed by detectives, one of whom should probably be stationed outside to keep strangers Mm -hmm. out of shooting range of Mr. Peterson. He demands to speak with Julie and presents Mr. Peterson with a court order, and Peterson is forced to admit to the man that both Julie and Sharon have been kidnapped. The man assumes this is an elaborate scheme to hide a witness from the defense. No, I won't buy that. Hold on, there's been a kidnapping, mister. <laughs> oh, come on. You can't con me by hiding her and pretending she's been kidnapped. That's obstruction of justice. For- but when he forces his way fully into the house, he sees four more detectives on phones and manning reel-to-reel recorders and finally grasps the gravity of the situation. Peterson informs Kerner that he's headed out to pay the ransom now. We cut now to another small home as Bill Luffs rings a doorbell. Rip answers and invites him in. Bill addresses him as Artie, so that's Rip Torn's name now, Artie. In the book it's R.T., but Artie is still his nickname. At first I assume that Artie was just a friend of Bill's who overheard about the girl, but it's quickly clear that they planned this scheme together. What happened to you? Is Julie okay? It's still all right. Insane that Bill doesn't have a police tale on him, since my number one suspect would be the guy that urged his wife to leave this girl unattended right. minutes before she was kidnapped. Right. And and this is the character who I could think of going to the mailbox. Like, sure. Who, without police saying, that's awful suspicious that the guy yeah. who lives here is checking the mailbox. 
It's like but he's it's a not, handyman. He's not his mailbox. He's going to the neighbor's mailbox. Maybe I he's think putting that's cookies weird. in there. He lives in this house. He's just like, these are my neighbors. Sometimes I send them mail. Bill explains that Peterson is paying the ransom and there's no funny business. When Artie mentions something about killing the girls to avoid witnesses, Bill starts into the textbook, but you said you wouldn't hurt anybody speech. Artie doesn't care and starts fingering egg salad out of a tub in the fridge. There's a completely pointless moment here where a kid rings the doorbell to collect some money Artie owes, and immediately after he closes the door comes the film's most insane moment. <laughs> Artie suddenly slides a chef's knife out of his sleeve and whips it six feet across the room into Bill's heart. Yeah. I, I thought for sure that this paper boy was going to come back. Like he'll Nothing. have seen something. It's like, it's not, it's like, no, my $2. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, that's all it, it is. <laughs> I want my $2. Artie must've spent hours sharpening this knife for it to go in so smoothly. <laughs> Bill dies instantly. And Artie puts a foot on the man's chest to retrieve the blade. It's like, you going to chop an onion with that later. That's covered in bill blood. That's gross. Bill blood baggins. We cut to a recording studio where an engineer mentions they found a tape this morning and they play it for Peterson. It's Julie's voice, proof of life, and another demand of immediate payment. Why was it sent to some music Random studio? music studio? I mean, How I did they know to reach out to Peterson with this? I think that they just wanted to send it somewhere where somebody be able to play it. I think they should have sent it to her work. Exactly. I was just going to say, send it to the newspaper. Back underground, Artie is splitting his egg salad with Sharon. Disconcertingly, he also shares with her his plans for spending the ransom money, a ranch in Arizona with horses, the obvious implication being they will not survive this ordeal. He also mentions one animal that is decidedly not invited to his dream ranch. No chickens. Jesus Christ, I fucking hate chickens, dumb shits. <laughs> okay, Rip, we got it. Oh, man. I, you hate I, chickens. I want to, I, in my heart, I want Rip Torn to just have been improvising it all of this. It was not in the script, for sure. For sure not in the script. Okay, so you're going to have a ranch with horses and chickens. No, fuck no. I'm not going to say that. I'll say what I'm going to say, okay? You just make sure the camera's going. Fucking chicken dumb shits. <laughs> Sharon asks if she can be unshackled to use the bathroom, and while she does, he approaches Julie and realizes something. You know, don't you? I hate you. Killed my mother. She asks why he did it, and he cryptically says that it was part of the deal, perhaps implying that he'd always planned to ransom the daughter for the full payout of Nina's life insurance policy. I, I didn't take it to mean that. What, what did it mean? I it was all it, part of the plan, like God's plan? No, I take it to mean it's just like you know, when, whenever I rape people, I have to kill them so that they oh, okay. are no longer witnesses. Okay, well then follow-up question. <laughs> Why did you rape my mother? <laughs> when Sharon returns, she is instructed to zip Julie back into the duffel bag. I wasn't clear why she had to leave the room for this little back and forth with Artie and the kid, but in the book, Sharon is breaking the metal flushing lever off the toilet to use as a weapon, but we never see anything like that in the film. She seems to think that she'll be leaving with Artie this time, but when he pulls her close, he jams a flathead screwdriver into her side and drops her to the floor. Not just jams it in, he twirls it mm. about in her innards. Well, that's how you use that tool, to be uh, fair. Well... But he does say that. He said, like, this is how you drop people or something to this that effect. This is how you screw people. No, it's not. Is this how you've been screwing people? Wrong. We cut to Mr. Peterson waiting on a street corner outside a payphone. It rings, and Artie yanks Julie up by an ear so her father can hear her panicked voice over the phone. Artie tells him where the drop is and reminds him not to bring cops, but when Peterson runs to his car, we can see three or four cops trailing him. As Artie drives Julie through the city, she discreetly swipes a tire iron off the center console. I don't know how he didn't notice yeah. this. 
When they get where they're going, Artie turns around to back into a parking spot and Julie cracks him hard in the head. She gets out of the car and he is quickly chasing her again. Again, I just love how much of a beating Rip Torn takes. Yeah. Just from anybody and everybody in this <laughs> It gets movie. much worse, too. She hides for a moment in an abandoned and graffitied subway car and covers herself with a dirty blanket at a dead end. When Artie can't find her, he turns around and she slowly uncovers herself to escape when she notices a couple guys spot-welding track. She calls to them for help, and Artie realizes that he is fucked, so he jumps on the back of a departing train. Right on time, her father appears, and they are joyfully reunited. We cut back to Sharon, still bleeding on the floor of the underground room. With all her strength, she crawls to the door, and for a moment, it appears as though Artie is back in the doorway, but as the camera tilts up, we see that it's the doll collector, here to save the day. She gets Sharon stood up, and together they limp for the exit, when, uh-oh... <laughs> This time, it is Artie, back to finish the job. He tries to strangle Sharon to the ground while the homeless lady rides his back, punching him repeatedly in the head. She reaches down to grab his face and wrench his head back, and he switches focus to the collector, lifting her in the air and dropping her hard across a wooden pallet, seemingly unconscious, or maybe dead. In the book, she dies. While he was distracted with the other woman, Sharon stumbled across a metal bar on the ground and cracks him hard across the face with it. When he comes stomping toward her again, it looks like she's fully slashed his left eye out of his head. She swings the bar up again and drives it hard into his throat, and when he turns to profile, we can see that she has driven it clear through his neck and out his back. This is pretty great. It was so awesome, (laughs) and his reaction is so good. His hands rise in a futile attempt to pull it back out, and he collapses to the floor, just as Mr. Peterson arrives with the police in tow. Somehow. Yeah. Oh, we just got here. Julie never saw... I mean, she knows that they were in a subway tunnel, but, but that's he's about also it. there with her. It's like your daughter just Why did went you bring through her a back? traumatic yeah, experience. Neither of you should have been here. The cops should just be doing this without you. <laughs> I guess they needed the girl to lead them back to that room. I, I but but how? I she, she, yeah. she, she, just, she just did it backwards. I don't with, think she, she knew. She never saw how they got down there, and she never knew how to get out. Well, she was at least not in a duffel bag for a large portion of their last escape attempt. So maybe she found a place where she's like, I know where this is. I know where it is from here. Mm. But we freeze frame here on Sharon's relieved face. I, I still don't think she makes it. Like, you yeah. Don't, you, you don't, don't think Sharon that, makes it? I don't know, man. You have that much uh, stuff rearranged with stabby mm-hmm. things on your insides yeah. and, and you die pretty quickly. Well, he didn't go in that far though. I don't know. You, pier- you pierce your intestines. Yeah, she's going to have problems. It's not gonna. Be, it's not gonna be a fun month, but I don't think she's dead. I don't know. In the book, she just wakes up in a in an ambulance, and they and it's like her leg is broke or something. It's she's she didn't get stabbed in the side like that. So was he actually going to return the girl no. for the for the money? Why does he bring the girl to the place where the father is? Because the dad is here mm-hmm. to receive the girl. It's like why didn't he leave her? Well, we we never know. He 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 was bringing her. But I, I think that the plan was to have the money dropped off somewhere. He, would he should have just left her in a duffel bag in that room with her dying friend. Like, and, why did he leave Sharon alone but not leave the girl alone? Well, he needed her to make be part of the phone call at least. Yeah, but then after that, leave her in the van. Mm. I, I guess she got out of the van she before he could van, do that. Yeah. But she should have been confined in some way, not free to grab a tire iron and smack him in the head with it. This guy doesn't even know how to kidnap children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His line of work was raping, not right. kidnapping. Yeah. A quick title card assures us that Ronald Thompson received a full pardon and was released from prison. Other changes from the book, the kid is a boy, 
and specifically an asthmatic boy, so carrying him around in a duffel bag is much more terrifying. Everybody keeps thinking he's he's dying in there, and he's screaming that he can't breathe. Um, also, the mother was strangled with a scarf and not smashed with a hammer. The ransom was 82000 not 182000 At the end, Artie is trying to leave by plane as the police are closing in, but Mr. Peterson shows up at the terminal, so he has to abandon his flight and go back to the underground bunker, which is not a bunker. The police figure out that Artie used to work as a dishwasher in this underground room and bust in to rescue Sharon from Artie instead of letting her rescue herself. I think that's another change that the movie makes that I appreciate, is yeah. that she does it herself before yeah. the cops get there. Mm -hmm. That's also how, because Sean S. Cunningham, obviously, is coming off of Friday the 13th, that's how a slasher ends. You save the day yourself, and mm -hmm. then the cops show up. It's yeah. Not, yeah. You know, they're not supposed to come here and rescue you. And that's the end of the film. I like it. Yeah. I like the performances from Mulgrew and Torn and the kids good. Yeah, it was fine. It was bizarre in some in some ways. Like I, I have so many I have, I have questions, but not too many. Yeah. Uh, you know, like what 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 were the Luffs getting out of this other than I guess money? I don't um, think that the that Mrs. Luffs knew this was happening. No? I think she I, would yeah, be, I, I agree with that. I think she would be disgusted and divorced mm. Bill right away if he weren't already dead. But, but that is a great question. Like, why Why did he... He was going to split the money with Rip, I'm sure. I guess. That just seems like a low amount of money for mm -hmm. for doing that. I don't know. $91,000 in, in 1981? And, and presumably, you know, he was already working for the family, and so he would have a relationship with this girl right. where... He, Maybe that's he the knows problem. The, he knows, he, but he knows the trauma she's been through. Why would he want her to be kidnapped, even if he thought nothing bad would happen to her? Mm -hmm. like, what what a horribly traumatic experience to have. And did he know that Rip Torn was the no. murderer no. of his mother? Every, I think, oh, yeah. No, I don't think he did know that. No, okay. I, I think he assumed that this was just an insurance scheme that he told his friend about, oh, this, this woman I work for passed away, and she got a life insurance policy for $182,000. Mm. And he's like, we could split that money if we pretend to kidnap the daughter. Mm -hmm. She'll be fine. We'll give her back and she'll be totally fine. I'll take good care of her while she's gone. And so then when it started to get more and more serious, he's like, wait, what's going on with this girl? Because it seems like she's not fine. I, well, how are you taking care of her? I, I disagree with that in a way because that presumes that Bill went and found Rip to say, hey, let's do this, as opposed to the other way around, which mm -hmm. was I approached the person who's in living with them and tried to convince him to let me do this for money. Well, yeah. in, in the book, they're just friends. They were already friends before this happened. So it's just something that came up in conversation between them. Hmm. So does that mean that he went out and killed his friend's boss? It, it just raped and killed his friend's boss? Yeah. Uh, I was curious about uh, when, because this takes place, you know, obviously in the 80s. Right. And the book probably takes place in the 70s. Uh, because, uh, you know, I was thinking, like, when was when was DNA evidence first used in court? To identify specific people? Not yet. Y yeah, exactly. No, it, was like, yeah. it wasn't until, like, 1986 that they used DNA in a court case. Right. Um, so it's like, okay, so. Uh, but it seems also, though, uh I assume Ronald Thompson uh, was there at the house when the police arrived or like what, 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 because they believe Ronald Thompson is the murderer. Right. So they believe that because I presume he stayed with the girl until the police arrived. 
I wouldn't even think he'd call the cops. He'd yeah. be the one to have called. Yeah. And so, then when they get there, she's just like, he killed my mom. And it's like, yeah. no, I didn't do it. I came in after it <laughs> yeah, happened. Yeah, I came, like, came in and called the police. They're like, you're under arrest. We're yeah. going to murder you. Um, but also, I feel like um, you could probably tell whether or not he had had sex. Yeah. You, and you could probably also like check under her fingernails for like because yeah. they check for like skins mm-hmm. like scratching and if he had no scratch marks on him this woman was dead when he came in and he's like I literally just got here there's a package outside and there's... when you smash somebody's head with a hammer yeah. usually there's splatter and I would yeah. think that he'd be clean yeah but yeah. he does pick up the hammer like <laughs> yeah. an idiot oh, and yeah. he taps her head a few more times <laughs> is this what happened little girl <laughs> just trying to was fuck it, up your was dreams it, was it like this <laughs> um, yeah and she's like She's like, and he was taking pictures of her. It's like, well, then where's the camera? Right. Like, yeah. Where, if this guy was here, he would still have the camera. Yeah. And 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 I thought for he had sure, a really shitty lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like all the circumstantial. Well, the book plays his mother, the kid's mother, as being kind of a red herring because she keeps saying threatening things to Sharon because Sharon is going on TV saying, "I'm not disputing that Ronald Thompson killed this woman. I'm saying that." We don't have the right to execute people regardless of their actions. Like they should be imprisoned or rehabilitated, Mm -hmm. but we don't have the right to kill people as a state. And the kid's mom is like, you're tanking his case. The governor can't pardon this kid, even though there's no damning evidence other than this one girl's testimony, because you keep going on television and saying, yes, he definitely killed this woman, but we shouldn't be allowed to kill him for it. And that's just like... It's turning public tide against him. Mm. And so the mom is like, I'm going to do something terrible to you if they kill my son. And so they keep making it seem like she was behind this somehow or she paid Rip Torn to do it. Yeah, I'm also – I also have questions about the relationship of Sharon and and Mr. Peterson. It seems even weirder in the in the book. Okay, yeah, because it seems it, – it, it, it almost seems like – she wanted the wife out of the way. Yeah. Because she's like, what can I do to make you like me? Yeah, like, that, oh, God, what, that, what is it, this? It freaks me out a little bit. And also the fact that they're like diametrically opposed politically. Mm. That it's like, how are you falling for this guy who, if you're so like virulently anti-capital punishment, that you like, oh, but he's so sweet though. And it's like, but he wants to murder people. He wants to murder that child that just got charged with his wife's murder. And uh, <laughs> it's like, how are you justifying this? If you're so passionate about this one legal aspect of like the, of this, this state's government Mm -hmm. that you're for some reason still okay with him being the exact opposite of you or is she planning to kill him so that she can take out the opposition? Uh, And yeah, it just, it also just seems to weird, weird to form a relationship during the two years of the court case of your wife's murder. It's like, it's like while you both work for, for different, yeah, uh, publications Rival like news yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> rivaling media. Yeah, because he works for like a, a print thing, yeah. like a magazine, and she works for a news station. Yeah, so th- there's like like these are kind of nitpicky things. Like yeah, because I, I, yeah. I just was thinking about them, and in, in the like the whole of the movie is like you know, a lot of questions about what these characters <laughs> are and who they're what they're doing. Yeah. But uh, but Rip's great. Yeah, Rip, he's doing a great job. He's so angry and just <laughs> grumpy yelling at yeah. everybody. I but mean, I, potato salad grosses me out already, but, like, <laughs> the way he eats it. <laughs> yeah. He just sticks his finger <laughs> deep into it and just pulls out a lump and puts it in his mouth. Was it potato salad or egg salad? I couldn't remember. It was egg salad. Oh, okay. sorry, egg salad. Either way. 
I love both of those things. But I just I love when <laughs> don't when like salading things that aren't salad. <laughs> the kid raps on the bathroom stall, and all the other guys come out, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you don't want to give us your money, old man." And like instead of being like, "Oh shit, like this is going to be a problem," like Riptorn's like, "All right, all right, here we yeah, go." Yeah. He's like straightening out his shoulders, like mm-hmm. puts his stuff down. He's like, "All right, come on, come on, <laughs> come at me." And he, and he punches like the first three or four kids square in the face. But yeah. Eventually, they just outnumber him. But I think he would have killed these kids if they left him in there long enough. <laughs> just show him walking out of the bathroom with, like, just coated in blood. Mm-hmm. just a bunch of dead bodies behind him. They all have chef's knives in their hearts. <laughs> <laughs> he just uses, like, the blue Raj. He just got... Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, he doesn't carry knives. Um, but It's just forking people up. But, yeah, thumbs up for me on this one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a thumbs up. And where's this going, Letterboxd? Uh, I, I have it in the in second place right now. It's it's under Zoot Suit, but it's uh, it's two of seven. Richard, uh, I also have it in second place uh, below Zoot Suit. Same here, second place under Zoot Suit. But for me, it's above Aftermath. Oh, I think yeah. you guys have Jaws of Satan in third. Yes, I no, do. I have Splits in third. Oh, okay. <laughs> Our director here was Sean S. Cunningham. Before this, he directed Here Come the Tigers, a cheap Bad News Bears ripoff, and then he struck gold with the first Friday the Thirteenth film which was originally a simple Halloween-slash-meatballs hybrid that paid for itself more than 100 times over in the box office. Naturally, Paramount was quick to offer him the director's chair for a sequel, but based on an accurate understanding of the first film's conclusion, he didn't think a sequel made any sense, and instead moved on to this, intending to prove himself as a more serious filmmaker. After this, he also directs Spring Break and Deep Star Six, He also produced the House series of horror comedies and returned to the Friday the 13th franchise to produce Goes to Hell, Jason X, Freddy vs. Jason, and the 2009 reboot. Novelist Mary Higgins Clark, this was the first film to be adapted from one of her novels. Later adaptations include Where Are the Children and then mostly TV movies. The other writer, Earl Mack Roche, previously wrote the story and screenplay for New York, New York, and later wrote The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. The other writer, Victor Miller, previously wrote Here Come the Tigers and Friday the 13th for director Cunningham and retained character credits on the entire Friday franchise, including many unauthorized fan short films that still make their way to his IMDb page. The music here came from Lalo Schifrin. He has 218 composer credits, including Cool Hand Luke, Bullet, Kelly's Heroes, The Beguiled, Pretty Maids All in a Row, THX 1138, The Earth 2 TV Movie, Mission Impossible Series, Enter the Dragon, Charlie Varick, Roller Coaster. So far on the show, he has composed... When Time Ran Out, Serial, The Nude Bomb, Brubaker, Battle Creek Brawl, The Competition, Caveman, Dirty Harry, Buddy Buddy, Dirty Harry 2, a.k.a. Magnum Force. More recently, he's composed the 93 Beverly Hillbillies, Rush Hours 1, 2, and 3. And his work on this film was reportedly a collaboration with Dennis Sands and Greg Orloff, but they don't get screen credits. The cinematographer here was Barry Abrams. He previously lit Here Come the Tigers, Friday the 13th, and The Children. This was his last feature film DP credit. The editor here was Susan E. Cunningham, the wife of director Sean S. Cunningham. She was also an assistant editor on Here Come the Tigers and an associate editor on Friday the 13th. She came back for a full editor credit on Friday the 13th Part 2, despite her husband's departure from the franchise, and after this her final editing credit was for Sean's next film, Spring Break. Kate Mulgrew played Sharon Martin. This was only her second feature film appearance after Isolt and Love Spell, which actually released later this year in the American market, so we haven't missed it yet. Coming up on the schedule. Next, she appeared as Major Rainer Fleming in Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. She had a three-episode arc as a love interest for Sam Malone on Cheers, but is likely best known for one of three things. 
One, her extensive voice acting work on various animated series between the mid-90s and now, Aladdin, Batman, Gargoyles, etc., but more likely for her 91 appearances as Galena Red Reznikov from Orange is the New Black or as Star Trek's Captain Janeway, starting with Voyager but appearing in many subsequent Star Trek mm-hmm. series. Yeah. As with as with the Star Trek code, once you play a major character in Star Trek... That you is, get to be in everything <laughs> until you die. Well, it's also what you're always known for. Right. With the exception of Tim Russ, who's known Tuvok. for... Yeah, who's known for the We Ain't Found Shit on yeah. Spaceballs. I was just reading recently that the original actress cast in the Janeway role was coma slash Last Flight of Noah's Ark actress Genevieve Bujold, who quit the show halfway through her first day on set when she couldn't keep up with the hectic pace of a TV production. Film is a lot of hurry up and wait, but episodic television, especially at the time, was very assembly line, shoot, 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 and we will keep going until we finish this many pages to meet a strict network deadline, and she wasn't used to that. Rip Torn played Artie Taggart, He has a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for 1984's Cross Creek. We've seen him so far in Coma, One Trick Pony, and First Family. He's back this season for Beastmaster, Jinxed, and Airplane 2, the sequel. Later, he's Zeus in Disney's Hercules, Zed in Men in Black, and Jim Brody, the alleged fingerer of Tom Green's Freddy Got Fingered, which is one of my favorite performances from him. More recently, he had a great run as Don Geis on 30 Rock. He's also Sissy Spacek's cousin, and one-time husband to Anne Wedgworth, who we'll see later this year in Soggy Bottom, USA. After Anne, he was married to Geraldine Page, Madame Medusa from The Rescuers, who we've seen so far in Harry's War as Aunt Bev and Honky Tonk Freeway as Sister Mary Clarice. At the time of his recent passing, he was married to actress Amy Wright, who we've seen now in Wise Blood, Stardust Memories, and Inside Moves. James Naughton played Steve Peterson. He's the brother of American werewolf David Naughton, We saw him last in our Patreon review of The Paper Chase as the suicidal dropout with a photographic memory. Barbara Baxley played Lally, that's the woman with all the dolls. She was Shirley in Exorcist 3 and Lady Pearl in Nashville. James Russo played Ronald Thompson. This is his first feature film appearance. He's back later this season as the robber in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Unless the witnesses were mistaken. Maybe he wasn't the, maybe he was just the (laughs) Later, he shows up in Once Upon a Time in America, Beverly Hills Cop, My Own Private Idaho, Donnie Brasco, The Ninth Gate, and Django Unchained, among many other credits. Roy Poole played Walter Kerner. We saw him last as Dr. Gregory in Brubaker. Before that, he was in Network in 1776. Eleanor Phelps played Glenda Perry. This was her last film. Her best-known credits come from the 30s, like the 1934 Count of Monte Cristo and Cleopatra. David Allen Brooks played Big Bum, Later, he has credits in Manhunter, The Doors, Jack Frost 2, and Castaway. William Hickey played Maxie. He got an Oscar nomination for his supporting role in 86's Pritzy's Honor, but he's probably best known for his late-in-life appearances in a pair of Christmas classics, Christmas Vacation and The Nightmare Before Christmas. We've only seen him once so far as a preacher in our Minnesota review of Wise Blood. Jason Robards III played Videotape Technician, This was his first film. He's the son of Howard Hughes actor Jason Robards. Later, he appears in They Live. Kenneth Corey played Anchor Person. He was a doctor at the asylum in Endless Love and a man at rally in Hero at Large. Ray Aranha played Cop in Bathroom. He was a janitor in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Reed Morgan played Galloway. He was a reporter interviewing people on Blood Beach in Blood Beach. Gary Howard Clark played Penitentiary Guard. He's Private Walter Steele in Day of the Dead and Ticket Taker in Big. 
Noel Cunningham played Newsboy. This is the son of director Sean Cunningham and was once floated to play child Jason Voorhees until his mother, this film's editor, vetoed that decision. Noel later scores a producer credit on Jason X. Rainer Shine, that's the guy's name. Yeah, Rainer yeah, yeah. Shine. That's an amazing name. He plays Derelict. He was the cabbie in Ghost Dad. He was Woodstock in Ace Ventura Pet Detective and Ratsy in The Quick and the Dead. He's Ernie Crane in My Cousin Vinny. Do you guys recall the last mention of My Cousin Vinny? Uh, uh, that was uh, Splits. In Splits, she introduces her actual cousin Vinny. She says, oh, and this is my cousin Vinny. Uh, Vinny, this is Chuck. Chuck, my cousin Vinny. But yeah. so you said he was the cabbie in Ghost Dad. So is he like the crazy Satan mm-hmm. worshiping? Where he's like, I <laughs> am Satan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Angel Salazar played Dude at Phone Booth. He's Walberto, probably Alberto. Maybe I typoed that. <laughs> I like Walberto. Looks like Waluigi. He's Walberto in Carlito's Way and Chichi in Scarface. Bill Anagnos played Hood in Bathroom. He's a baseball fury in The Warriors. John Ring played Welder. He was the fire commissioner in Ghostbusters. P.K. Fields played a waitress. She's the girl from So Fine who reenacted the ice in the crotch move from the other side of Midnight. <laughs> It's just girl in office <laughs> is her uh, credit in that. I think that's everything for A Stranger is Watching. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. If you enjoy what we're doing, consider giving us a review on iTunes. I don't think it helps visibility, but it's good for morale. And if you really like the show, you should probably join our campaign at patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Matt Suter. As a $5 patron of the show, Matt now has access to 48 full-size 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. For March of 1973, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following four titles. The Great Gatsby, The Sugarland Express, The Super Cops, and The Three Musketeers for a 50th anniversary review next month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Vice Squad, which IMDb describes like so. A single mother prostitute who goes by the name Princess finds herself forced to work undercover for the police in order to apprehend a homicidal misogynist pimp named Ramrod who will do anything not to get arrested. We leave you now with the trailer for Vice Squad. Hollywood, the dream and the nightmare. Somebody call the cops! squad the real story the true story coming soon from avco embassy pictures <laughs> what was that laugh <laughs> i asked myself <laughs> i'm trying to recreate that as much as possible i don't think i've ever laughed like that in my life <laughs> that was new <laughs> what is that this is my new laugh for 2024 <laughs> new year new laugh <laughs> We have a spanking new podcast for your ear holes called Doom Generation. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Later, Doomers!